Hello and welcome to Push Your Peak with me, Louise Minchin. Each week I'll be joined by some of the world's most incredible sports people who've achieved extraordinary things. I'll be finding out what it takes both physically and mentally to surpass what you think the human body is capable of to achieve your goals. As these people share their stories, I hope you take away the belief that you too can achieve your own goals no matter how big or small. This week, I'm delighted to introduce track cycling world champion Dan Bigham to the podcast. Dan most recently won gold in the team pursuit at the 2022 UCI Track Cycling World Championships and silver at the Birmingham Commonwealth Games. In August of this year, Dan also broke the UCI indoor hour record, covering a distance of 55.548 kilometers in 60 minutes. He held that record for 50 days. More on that in a moment. Outside of his achievements on the track, he currently works with the Ineos Grenadiers as race engineer. Everything about Dan and his successes are all a testament to the marginal gains he looks for in his physical and technical performance. Dan, a very warm welcome to the podcast. And first of all, huge congratulations. Quite a lot of things going on um, in the last few weeks, not least of which you got married. Yeah. <laughs> well <know>. done. <laughs> Thank you. It was uh, a very special day. Um, yeah. In fact, it's just an awesome week full stop. And yeah, to get all your family and friends together and just to celebrate that, it was it was properly, properly amazing. Just a bit of a world. It's a shame I couldn't hang, hang around and do it all over again the day after and the day after and the day after. But uh, yeah, other things second. Oh, that's so lovely. And married to a fellow cyclist, of course, Josh Loudon. Yes, uh, we met on a training camp uh, about four years ago now. And how does that work as kind of both being cyclists, it's got to help massively, actually, hasn't it? You understand each other, you understand the stresses, the pressures and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah, it definitely helps a huge amount. And just Everything that you go through, you go through together. And I know that's what couples are about and like being teammates. But even to the point of last year when when I went for the British hour record, the day before Josh broke the women's world hour record. And it was like such like a a good thing to go through as a as a team, as a pair, and to both know exactly the worries and the stresses and the things that you've you're going through and to be able to support each other at the same time in that was yeah, it was really unique, I think. And yeah, it's, it's quite enjoyable, I think, to both be able to relate quite heavily and help each other out in everything that we do. Oh, what a lovely way to start a podcast as well, actually. And you also won gold at the World Championships in the same week? Uh, yes. So, yeah, as you do. <laughs> I know, I know. I don't think the GB coach quite anticipated that kind of stressful run into the, to the World Championships. But I mean, it wasn't, I can't say it wasn't intentional because it was definitely planned. It was just that when we planned the wedding, I didn't think the track world championships were, were on my calendar. It wasn't something that I was aiming towards. I didn't even think the door was open at British Cycling again. And I think that's testament to the changes that have gone on since the Tokyo Olympics, that that door reopened and yeah, suddenly I'm in the team and we're off to the world. What an amazing turnaround, actually. I've got, to, I've got so many things to ask you about. The pink wheels. <laughs> uh, I just love pink. I always have done. It's been like a running theme in every team whether they like it or not, I somehow get pink involved in our colour schemes and our equipment. And the sponsors in Ineos, they, obviously I work for Ineos, but I don't ride for Ineos in, in the World Tour team. So I have a bit more freedom to uh, inject my own design ideas. And Princeton were very, very keen to fully, well, wholeheartedly embrace that. So uh, yeah, they went with hot pink wheels. I was going to say, they're not just pink. They are just like, as you say, hot pink and everybody else is wearing these. Well, not wearing, they're riding, obviously, these black wheels. And there you are, like this kind of 
neon machine. <laughs> it stands out. I think it's good for, for the analysis. I think we should all ride completely different equipment or colours. Yeah. Because then you know who's who. Because if not, you become this amalgamation of the four same guys riding around and who knows who's in what position. Oh, well, I just, I've listened to so much of what you've said and I'm so been looking forward to this because the thing, I, the way I would describe you, I think, is you are a disruptor. And I think the pink wheels are exactly that. Would that be a fair assessment of what you do? Yeah, I think you've distilled me down quite well. I think I enjoy being that. Actually. It's not that I came in intentionally into the sport and it was like, I'm going to throw this, yeah, disrupt it all and, and do things my way. It was just, I guess, that's how, how I ended up and my ideas and the way I went about things ended up, yeah, disrupting the status quo and the establishment, as it were. Um, but it's been fun to be, to do that, to try and do things my way and rather than, uh, yeah, the way things have always been done. Well, I mean, you've done extraordinary things. Hopefully, you know, throughout this podcast, I mean, lots of people will know a lot about you, but we'll, you know, we'll sort of get through the disrupting. Tell me about, you know, Dan as as a child. Is you, You're an engineer at heart, aren't you? Was that always your passion? Yeah, I think so. My family have always been into engineering in different ways. From Even my great granddad was an engineer back in, in World War Two, And uh, that kind of led through my granddad, my dad, and they've done engineering in different ways. Uh, and then motorsport at the same time. I think tying those two together, I always thought that was was where I would go. I love Formula One. I went to university to study motorsport engineering, and it took it took going to that to understand maybe it wasn't quite what I wanted. I'd always been athletic. I enjoyed well, every, everything as a kid. I played tennis, squash, football, rugby, swimming. Just dabbled in the whole spectrum of sports but I never had pushy parents to, to say you're going to do this and I quite like that it, it meant that I got to university and hadn't really committed but I'd had a, a huge wealth of experience across the board so I had the knowledge to know when I found that sport that it definitely was the one and, and to go for it and yeah when I well I worked in Formula One as an aerodynamicist with Mercedes F1 the AMG, or AMG Petronas um, now we were actually partially owned by Ineos which is funny because now I work with some of the guys, <laughs> same guys I used to uh, but when I was there, I realized it wasn't quite what I wanted from a career. And at the same time, I was progressing on my cycling. So I made made the leap to to be a cyclist and to kind of pull the engineering into, into my own sport. And just take us through that, because you you did some extraordinary things. You set up this team, didn't you? Um, just from like a student house and you took on the world and you started beating. And that's that's a very short version. Tell us a slightly longer version. <laughs> uh, you're not a million miles off, though, to be honest. It was myself and a few friends. And we'd, well, Charlie was still at university. Myself, Johnny and, ja- and Jacob had just graduated, literally just. So we were as good as students or we had everything that goes with that. So the student debt and <laughs> the lack of any, any financial ability untidy to do Untidy kitchen anything. as well. Oh, a unt- terribly, terribly untidy kitchen. Um living in or living in squalor basically is what it came to to get by but we had an ambition and we had a lot of ideas about the sport I think because we'd been to university and we were all quite open-minded quite progressive quite challenging of the systems that were out there and I think collectively we all thought things could be done better or differently and wanted to have uh, an avenue to sort of experiment and myself being engineered Johnny was a psychologist Jacob sports scientist and Charlie was studying engineering so we all had these kind of different areas of expertise and also all love cycling and the team pursuit seemed like a good environment for it and yeah I guess I led on it and managed to, to convince them to join the party as it were and we all moved to Derby into a, a student house that well it was a two-bed student house sleeping four of us so oh my goodness <laughs> needs must um but yeah we we went and 
yeah, went to the World Cups. Um, I mean, we, we fell flat on our face to begin with. We, we failed miserably and we learned from that. But we equally proved that our ideas had merit and they got us to the top of the sport very quickly. We, we won a World Cup in our first year and, we, yeah, we were beating well, beating people like Great Britain, our um, own nation. And you had your, yeah, you had your own nation. What were you called? Darby? What was it called? <laughs> the People's Republic of Darvados, which is absolutely, yeah, tongue in cheek. But it just gave us something to ride for because we weren't representing our nation. We were representing Derby and Derbyshire. And we had so much support from Derbyshire. And obviously, what bike came onto support is not that they're Derbyshire. They're, they're slightly into Nottingham, but they're very, very close. And it just felt like the right thing to support those who were supporting us and to fly, fly the flag. I mean, it does some, it literally sounds like uh, some, something somebody would make up for a movie that for essentially, you know, students take on the world of cycling and actually smash it out of the park. <laughs> we were lucky. We did have a, a documentary, James Paul, came along to follow us in that year. And there is a documentary online if you search The Pursuit or well, Who What Bike. It's only 45, 50 minutes, but it's uh, very raw. Very, just, it is what it is. And that, that was our story. And um, I think James. It felt like he, he looked into it, really. He just came along to, to be a part of it. And, yeah, this magical story came out of it. Okay, so, I mean, the things that you... So you basically look at the sport, don't you, from a from an engineering point of view, and it's about every single player. Well, it's about the not just marginal gains, it's the easiest gains. Is it in some ways? Yeah, it's the efficiency. So especially when you're lacking in the, the financial resource required to compete at that level, you need yeah. to be intelligent about what you do. So we weren't going in there thinking we'll throw money at this problem and we'll slightly improve what everyone else is doing. We thought, well, actually, how how do we achieve the result that we or the speed that we need to go and win these World Cups? And what's the fastest way to get from A to B? And you just thought about things differently. So, for example, one of one of the biggest wins, or I guess two really, because they kind of go hand in hand, were the the technique and the strategy that we used in the team pursuit. So historically, you look at the event, four guys or four women as well. It's four thousand meters. Uh, th- third person across the line counts and yeah. they would do a lap turn so you'd start one person does a lap they change get on the back next person does a lap but we thought well everybody's different we have different physiologies different aerodynamic drag coefficients um, and we all suited to slightly different roles in that team so we changed the strategy up where we just did very long turns so instead of doing a lap turn we were doing three four five lap turns which means that suddenly instead of changing eight nine ten times in a race you change three or four times. And every time you change, you literally lose a bike leg. Of course, it's like in Formula One, you're changing your tyres, you're losing time. Exactly, exactly. So that, that was a, a simple win. And then the strategy of using riders in different roles. So Johnny, very anaerobic, really strong rider. He's more in the sprint domain. He's not quite a top-end sprinter, but he's equally not an endurance rider. He sits in that kind of weird bit in the middle. So we used him for a six-lap turn from the start, and then he ejected. He was out the race. And all the commentators were losing their minds saying they're down to three early. And I'm like, well, I guess we are down to three early, but also the other three guys haven't been on the front yet. <laughs> They've just had a nice, easy ride sitting in. So it's just redistribution of energy and thinking about it a little bit differently rather than yeah, taking a, a financial approach to it. It was using our heads. I'm, I'm sort of taking so much from that because we could all do in so many parts of our work or whatever, you just, you think that's the way things are done and you could just, you just turned it upside down and actually it makes the way you've explained it of course makes perfect sense yeah i think that came from understanding the demands of the event so literally breaking it down from first principles we need to ride this distance in this time and therefore we need to put this power in and then we need to have this drag coefficient and just breaking down bit by bit level by level of 
what do we need to do? And then to hit these metrics, okay, we need to improve our training or our nutrition or our race execution or our rolling resistance or our drivetrain efficiency or our efficiency of drafting each other. And it was this big sort of system where we just applied the knowledge we'd learned at university and through the sport to improve the areas that we knew were important. But I think it was knowing what was important and ignoring the things that weren't because quite easy in cycling, especially in this modern day world, marketers are saying, you need to buy this and you need to focus on that. And that's fantastic because they want to go and buy or they want to sell you something. But when it comes down to it, we just want to go fast. So it was really just using our knowledge to understand what was truth and what was just, well, people trying to sell you something. For us mere mortals, what should we be looking at, for example? I suppose it depends what our goals are, does it? I think that's the main thing. Yeah, you've got to understand what you want to achieve first. You can't just go out there and, and blindly try to improve or you'll you'll never know if you've done what you, you want to do. So having a goal, having it smart, so having it specific, measurable, etc. So you, you've got something that you can then start to distill down. And I think it depends on, on what the goal is. But I, I think trying to understand, one, what's in your control uh, and then where you need to also go and get some, some expert help, whether that's on... The, the physiology side, so your nutrition, your coaching, going to the gym, your strength and conditioning. Or on the equipment side, your position, your choice of clothing, helmets, wheels, tires, etc. I think we were quite lucky that we could try and cover off most of that within the team, but we didn't understand everything. So we went out of our way to plug those holes with knowledge where we didn't have it. And we had some really, really knowledgeable people come on board, people like Medi Cordy, for example. He was um, a PhD researcher at UK Sport, but had some incredibly good ideas. And we were like, we need you. We need that. And I think we gave them this avenue straight to the top of the sport, whereas historically, at least within sports science, to get that application at the elite level takes many years and and to really um, chip away at the elite systems, whereas we were just giving them this open door to action all these great ideas. So I think it's it's understanding what you need to, to do to improve, but also understanding where you need to get your help. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I've done, inspired by you, I've actually just refitting my Watt bike because I think I just sat on it and went and went riding. So it's kind of, you, I mean, I know that's so basic, isn't it? But it's important. <laughs> Comfort is key. Yeah, I think it's surprising. Uh, most people do that. I'm, surprised. I'm just as bad for it. Um, a lot of people don't give enough credit to biomechanics and how much they impact on your performance. Because at the end of the day, if you feel uncomfortable, you're not going to enjoy it. And mm. I think so much about cycling is enjoyment. And you've got to find what aspect of cycling or sport in general, what aspect you're doing it for, because we're not going to motivate ourselves day in, day out if it's not fun. And I think you've got to make, to have fun. You've got, got to be comfortable to begin with. Yeah, that, that's, that's very true. Um, and you, you've done lots of work with Wattbike, or they helped you at that stage, didn't they? Yeah, Wattbike came on quite early. Uh, so we had our first season, and even then, Wattbike were helping us uh, through that. And then they came on as a title sponsor for our second, third, and fourth seasons, I think. I mean, fourth season didn't quite happen with the way COVID played out in the end. But um, yeah, they were incredibly helpful. as a local company as well. And just being able to connect us up with other people as well. It wasn't just um, the access to the, the smart people within Watt Bike and, and being able to go and ride on Watt Bike Atom or, the, or the, on the Pro Trainer. It was also the people that were connected in with Watt Bike and, oh, you need a bit of this or you need to access this kind of person or here's another great idea that we've been introduced to. Have you heard about that? And I think it was that sudden opening of this great tree of knowledge that was incredibly beneficial with Watt Bike. It wasn't just one single aspect of performance. It opened many, many doors that suddenly yeah. we could go walk through openly and easily without having to, to ask or to sell to somebody. It was just a, here you go, here's something cool. And, that, and also you can give real-time feedback to all of those companies as well, which I suppose is, is incredibly valuable. 
So do you all did you all train on what bikes? Is that what you were training on? Yeah, we we had this quite funny setup. We probably should have done more more to um, document it. But we lived on, or at least in our second year, we lived in uh, student halls at Derby College campus, of all places. Uh, again, just another door that has opened through the Derbyshire Institute of Sport. Yeah. Who uh, they said, oh, this is. So we've had a few break-ins at our previous place. We weren't in the nicest area, should we say? So they, uh, yeah, moved us in there. But we were, we're in this bottom floor with, um, trying to think, one, two, three, four, five, five, basically like university halls, but back yeah. at college. And everyone has a watt bike, but like stashed away in a different room. So like there'd be one in like the shower block, no. one a bit in the, and then they'd roll out into the hallway. So you could have like two or three. And it was quite a funky setup, but it did the job. And did you get, I mean, okay, so it's kind of, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because did you get physically much stronger? Is that what's made the difference? Or is it, it's the engineering and the, which which is it? Because I've seen sometimes you, Mm. you, you've said that actually you don't need to train because you can make the engineering better. Is is that true? Well, it was a rolling joke for a while that if we found 10 watts in a, in an aero test, for example, you don't have to train for a few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, I guess you'd go faster, but uh, it, it was always a bit tongue in cheek because you have yes. to work on both sides. Right. You can't, you can't be complacent and say, "Oh, well, we've, we've made a faster skin suit, so uh, who, who cares about this training session?" Let's go we to the pub. Yeah, let's go, go celebrate. But I, uh, we definitely had to work on both sides because at the World Cup level, it's still competitive. Even though we're we're making big leaps forward and we were getting fast, fast we still needed to to work on our physiology because when it comes down to it, you still do have to pedal the bike. Yeah. And I think we did make big leaps forward in, in a lot of different respects. I think um, just being able to measure things is, is incredibly important. And people give a lot of stick to power meters nowadays that they're destroying the sport because people go and race up Tour de France stages and they just look at their power meter. Well, that, that's I can see the argument for that. But in training, power is absolutely king and we all rely on it so heavily. And I don't think anyone quite appreciates the impact that can give to you. It's such a, a great, true, objective measure. And having that consistently for all of us is such a great thing to just hop on a bike, trust your numbers, be happy and be content and know that you can keep getting better. And I should be looking at power. I mean, I do, actually. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think everybody should. At the end of the day, if you want to get fitter, that is the metric of fitness. You're producing more energy. And that's that's how you're going to go faster. You put more energy into the equation. So, yeah, measuring it and being confident that it's getting better. Is, yeah, is and feeling a bit despondent like I do at the moment when it's clearly not. <laughs> or it's clearly not what it was in the past. <laughs> uh, you can get back. You can always, uh, I think, to be honest, I, I'm in the same situation right now. So I had my off-season. I get on the bike and it's like, uh, it's scary how much you lose so quickly. And it just takes consistency. And that's one thing I've learned over time. It's not one session, it's not do it riding your bike when you feel good and great and everything's going well. It's the consistency day in, day out when you don't want to ride your bike, but you know you should. That's oh, that's such a good message, I think, for all of us. I'm very proud because I've actually just done, I've done a 45 minute walk bike session ahead of this. And it's the first one I've done in weeks. And it was a bit disappointing, but now I feel good that I've done it. Um, so that's really, so consistency, I, I think you're absolutely right, aren't you? Um, I really want to talk to you about um, the world indoor record because... That is just an extraordinary feat of uh, determination and resilience from my point of view. Tell us about because you, you planned it meticulously, didn't you? Well, not just me, to be honest. It was a massive yeah. team that planned it. I think um, it, it came about over literally years of work around that. So to rewind back to 2020 as who, what bike, we were planning to go up to altitude 
to Bolivia, a place called Cochabamba, to have a go at the team pursuit world record, the individual pursuit world record, the kilo and the hour. It was this, we're, we're going out on a high kind of thing. It was our Massive. last season. Yeah, let's, let's go all in. <laughs> never, never go for something safe and small bet. We were, uh, we were properly keen for it. And then, yeah, COVID hit. Everyone knows how the rest of that panned out. But um, at that point, I realized I had this opportunity to, to be a bit more selfish. I'd been running this track team for a number of years. And to, to my physiological detriment, to an extent, I couldn't train as consistently and as well as I, as I probably, probably needed to or wanted to. But ne- that was still necessary for the team performance. So we still went faster because of it. But if I wanted to go faster myself, I needed to be a bit more selfish. And the hour record was something I always had dreams of uh of targeting. I did one back at university when I was what year would that have been? Twenty fourteen. Uh just on a random outdoor velodrome, a cold March morning. Just oh. thought, let's have a go. This is when it was all becoming that resurgence when you had Alex Dowsett and Bradley Wiggins and everybody else having a go at the hour and I thought, oh, let's give it a go. That was some way off. On a cold March day. I mean even <laughs> I know that's gonna be wrong for starters, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I just got carried away. I think my coach had set like an hour T T session right, or something. Just went for it. Yeah, it's an hour record. We'll do that, which is something 56 and a bit kilometers. Uh, so some way down yeah. on what I then achieved, yeah, a few years later. But, um, yeah, it meant COVID. I was, I was all in. I, I was working for the Danish cycling union as well throughout COVID. So I was on the track quite a bit, doing a lot of testing for them, but also that benefited myself. And I made big leaps forward, both physiologically and on, on the drag side and bit by bit the penny was slowly dropping in my head that maybe it is achievable to have a go at, at the world hour record. And it took till, well, sort of basically when the Olympics were on, I had a practice run literally the day after the Danes went to the Olympics and, and broke uh, the British hour record in training. So then I thought, right, let's go for the British hour record this year. And then I can figure out the logistics of going for the world hour record, because it, it's not just a case of saying, I'll go for it next week. There's a lot of organization and also the fact that I have to be on Adams, which is the, the anti-doping program worldwide. So I have to register, register myself for that because I'm not at a high enough level to automatically be registered. And that costs Just money. Costs money. Yeah, yeah, it soon adds up. You can spend, if you do it on the cheap, 20 to 30,000 pounds. If you do it on the top end, you can be 100, 200,000 pounds on attempting a record like that, which is quite scary. So, so um, you need sponsors and all the rest of it. You need and, support, yeah, and you need people around you. And I had a lot of support before I joined Ineos, and then that just took another step forward throughout, well, in the team. And a lot of people saw it as an opportunity to apply knowledge to an event that they'd seen but not been involved in. And it basically got traction within the team and had everybody who had a, a keen interest giving us ideas. So people like Ator Virabe, our nutritionist, he threw loads of cool stuff into the park. Turn Van Erp, our training scientist, he had loads of cool ideas and loads of papers around thermal physiology. And Johnny Whale, one of my, my best mates, um, he basically led on the organization of it. He'd been documenting all of my preparation throughout COVID and then saw this and was like, he, he was all in as well. And yeah, it was um, a proper project of uh, perseverance, but also just applying every little bit that we could find to that problem because you knew it would make a difference. Okay. So on the day, tell me about your mindset because you know, you've got the engineer, right, who'll be looking at the time and the power and all the rest of it. And beneath the engineer, there's somebody who's a sports, you know, you're a sportsman, you're an athlete as well. And is there conflict there? Or how? Do, what, what are you thinking on the day? You're just thinking numbers. So I've always tried to focus on execution, process, not outcome. I know, like, people say that all the time, but, like, as an engineer, it's a nice yeah. thing to think about. And I spend a lot of time, obviously, in spreadsheets and nerding out. And I guess that's where my enjoyment of the sport comes from. 
but it's something that I've always had. It's always brought confidence to me when my models and everything that I build work in real life. And it, I guess some of the things I'm doing is trying to prove the model works. And then you can then right. play about in the model in the meantime. And oh, the model says I can do this. And then you go back to it again. So all of the test runs and practice runs through 2020, 2021, 2022 into the actual one were me just being like, okay, that is true that we can do this. We can keep going forward and keep improving. And back in June, uh, sort of early June, I had a practice run on that very rare drone and broke the hour record in training. And that was all I ever needed. It's possible now. Uh, the spreadsheet says it's true. We've done it. Now we just need to actually do it in front of the real world, everybody watching, and we're good to go. And here's so, the diversion between engineer and athletes. You know what I mean? I see it now, right? <laughs> so you've got that in, the, in your backpack, ready to go. You know you can do it. I know I can do it, and you've just got to do it. So then it's more about focusing on ticking all the boxes along the way, making sure that you nail every session in the run into it, making sure that um, you're comfortable and confident at riding the line with what is a very aggressive position. So my, on the velodrome, you don't have to look, you know, where well, you don't have to look anywhere. Um, yeah, you're just so looking at the line. Literally looking at the line, but I don't have any forward vision really on the velodrome. So it's being able to confidently ride that position throughout fatigue when your core temp is above 40 degrees Celsius. So it's those kind of details. Really, that's a massive, has a massive impact. I mean, that's a lot, isn't it, 40? Yeah. So this came back to, again, the Ineos Grenadiers and the sports science nerds telling me some cool stuff. So uh, there was an interesting paper that Turn pulled up that said, effectively, as your core temperature goes up one degree Celsius, your gross efficiency goes down 1%, which is quite a significant amount. So we realized, well, if you can get you cold beforehand and keep you colder throughout, then you'll be more efficient. If you're more efficient, you can put more power out. Yeah. And obviously, it was small little details there. It became an ice eating competition beforehand. So I was literally eating well over a kilo of ice before the hour record to try and get my core temperature down as much as I could. This blows my, it literally blows my mind. Isn't that dangerous? Uh, I think you tolerate it. At the end of the day, I know I'm going to get warm again. I'm about to go and ride really hard for an hour. So, yeah. Wow. And um, so tell me when you, when, you, when you got it, I mean, how do you, you know, what's, what's your celebration like? I mean, you must be exhausted but elated. Yeah, I think when it goes well, the fatigue never really catches up with you because the, the sheer elation just carries you through. And I knew about 10 minutes to go, I could do it. And it was a case of how much can I put on it then? Right. So, you, right. Okay. At that point, you're putting, really putting your foot down. Yeah. You just, anything that's left, get it all out, do the best you can. And uh, yeah, it's just sheer relation, sheer, just enjoyment of the moment. How long you had the record for? Uh, 50 days. So longer than Liz Trust had her premiership. And that made me <laughs> chuckle. This podcast is brought to you by Wattbike. Push your performance this year with Wattbike. Whether you're training for a sportive or simply want to get fitter, the award-winning smart bike Wattbike Atom could be your perfect training partner. With integrated gear shifters, real ride feel and gold standard accuracy, this is the ultimate indoor bike to kickstart your indoor training. You can measure and track your cycling performance on the free Wattbike Hub app, and get real-time feedback on your pedaling technique too. Expertly crafted and designed in the UK, what bikes are tough enough to withstand elite athletes in training while beautiful enough to sit in your own home. Discover how what bike can help you reach your goals this year. Just head to whatbike.com. So tell me about, I mean, you know, we've talked about so much. Um, what's been the most um, thing you're most pleased that you've done? I mean, world championships, absolutely brilliant. What, what's what been the most the thing that you're most proud That's of? That's a good question. There's a lot of different things I'm proud of for different reasons. 
And I think from, from some of the, like the smaller level races and even like the first year with Team KJF, I was really proud about the things we did. And even though at the time I questioned myself quite heavily, is this the right thing to do? And it caused headaches and stresses. With where I am now to look back and be like, I'm actually proud that we stuck to what we said was the right thing to do even under pressure from everybody, NGBs and above saying, no, you need to fit the system. And we said, no, actually, this is how we, we should do it. And this is how it's the right way to do it. And I'm really proud of that. But then also I'm really proud of a lot of the, the things I've been involved with since then, like Joss's hour to, oh. to be able to help her was something cool because I think I felt in some ways I was, I felt guilty for putting her in the situation to be like, you should do the hour record. And then we did this test one. It was like, Ooh, the spreadsheet says you can definitely do it now. <laughs> but then to see her go through it and actually just achieve it was was pretty, pretty special. Oh, she still holds it, doesn't she? No, she just lost oh. it. Oh, just I'm so before, sorry. I know. This this was a bit of a dream, I guess, in my head, that we could hold it simultaneously. Uh, but she lost it about six weeks before I got the men's hour record. Gosh. And when you lose it, I mean, because actually you were, you were instrumental in you actually losing it, weren't you? Yeah, probably the first and last person in history to help the next person to break the record. So you were, you were helping Filippo Ganna massively and then, and then he beats you. How do you feel? Oh, I was definitely happy with him achieving what I knew he could do. Or he, he achieves even more than I thought he could do. Yeah. But yeah, at the same time, you're like, you want to keep the record. But I, I knew what I did was absolutely the best of me on that day. And everything I'd done to that moment was... I, I got my best performance out, but I know I'm not Felipe Garner when it comes down to it. And the project was always to help Filippo to, to break the hour record. And I was part of that. And that was both as an engineer and as a sports person was really awesome to be a part of. And then to see him, yeah, do what he's capable of. Because he is, he's genuinely one of the best athletes in the sport ever. Right. And to go and put 1.2 kilometers on me is, is it's pretty a lot, crazy. It? Yeah. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. Um, so listen, what's next for you? You're race engineer. So I know that you're actually, you're doing um, tests at the moment, aren't you, in Silverstone at the moment, yep. um, in the wind tunnel. And so, I mean, how exciting is that for you? It's, it's a fun thing to be a part of because instead of just picking like small little projects to be involved in i get to be involved in like these awesome projects like win the world championships win the tour de france <laughs> you can't really get get much bigger so i've always chased big goals and to now be heavily embedded in those and be part of what is a pretty awesome multidisciplinary team trying to tackle those and pull them apart it's it's really enjoyable as an engineer and i think when i hang my wheels up i'm really going to get my teeth stuck in and, and do even more but right now i just I, I do love it. I do love my job. Um, and talk about hanging the wheels up. So, what's your next ambition for your, you know, your pers- as an athlete? My next or my next big one? Oh, oh <laughs> next big one. Let's go next, next big, big one. one. Well, I guess for me now, having had, I guess, a transitional year from the hour record into the track, the big one for me is the Olympics. Oh, how fantastic! And I never thought that would be something I'd say. Of like, I'm looking forward to taking the. Olymp- I, I never even thought I'd go to the Olympics. To be completely honest, I'd, I'd put that one to bed. And the way things have turned around this year, it, it seems like a, a legitimate goal. So I am 100% all in for wow. Paris Olympics. Wow, that's amazing. So, but I mean, so you could carry on working and also being and also training, etc. As well. Yeah, I don't think I don't think my job is um, to the detriment of my performance. I think because of the environment I'm in, the people that are around me, it, it's made me the person I am. And that's not to say that as the Olympics close in, then I might 
take a few easier weeks or a week off or a month off or who knows what. I, that's discussions to be had with, with my boss. But yeah, I think it does make me a better athlete because I'm surrounded by so many other great athletes as well. I go on the training camps and I ride with them. I, I ride with people who've won multiple Grand Tours and won World Championships. And it's such a, yeah, it's, I wouldn't get an environment like it anywhere else. And I don't want to give that opportunity up just so I can train a little bit more or recover a little bit more because I think I get so much more out of it. It's not an easy life, but I definitely think it's to the betterment of my performance. I just really from all, you know, because everybody who listens to this podcast, most people are going to have a walk bike. Um, there's so much I've learned from talking to you, but what do you think we should be we should be looking out for and what should we be trying to do? Uh, I think one, have a goal. And to understand actually what is that goal from a performance term, like try and make it objective and measurable, uh, time and time based and, and then break it down and to, if you need support as well, whether that's from the what bike hub and getting different sessions or speaking to people at what bike and get some influence on, on your training, but actually have a, have a plan and to execute that plan and understand where it's tied to. Is it, are there specific events in the meantime that you're going to use as sort of test events? Uh, when do you need to hit certain goals by, whether that's a certain power for a certain duration? Um, and just to make sure you keep executing that, but also keep on top of that plan throughout. I think planning is the way you get performance. And I think races are won behind the scenes when you're, when you're training in your garage and it's cold and no one's watching. Unfortunately, that is where races get won and lost. And it's the, it's turning up to, to those sessions that, that really do matter. I think having the consistency to it is, uh, is pretty important. And don't be afraid to find somebody to hold you accountable. Accountability, and not in a bad way, whether that's your partner, whether it's your friend, whether it's a coach, whoever it might be, being accountable can be a good thing. Even going on Twitter and just documenting your training or on Instagram, I think it's, it's a good way of making sure you, you do what you should do, uh, even when people aren't watching. And, uh, I think as well, enjoy it. Just find what you enjoy and do that because that's what's going to motivate you every single day rather than forcing yourself to do something you don't think is, is, well, it doesn't, doesn't get you out of bed in the morning. So find that and do that. Do you know what? So having done my session on my walk bike, which I've not done for ages and I just, you know, I got off my bike and I'm like, ah, oh, I forgot how much I love it. And that's the point, isn't it? No one ever regrets a good session, do they? No. Or yeah, or even the bad ones. And I think in anybody, if anybody's listening to this, training in their shed or wherever it is, and it's cold and miserable, good on you. You get a gold star from me and respect from Dan. What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. Dan, it's been such a pleasure. Massive good luck to you um, in all your endeavours. And I shall really look forward to seeing the pink wheels. You wouldn't be allowed them, would you, at the Olympics or not? I don't know. That's a discussion to be had with GB, but I don't know. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I really hope you are. You just got to find some data that says they're faster and then we're good. <laughs> Done. Absolute pleasure talking to you. I just got to ask you the quick fire questions. What is your guilty pleasure after a savage what bike session? Absolutely, it's a guilty one, but I am a, a big beer fan. So a double dry hop, double IPA. Oh, I'm so pleased. So few people say things like that. What song <laughs> gets you pumped for a workout? Uh, I have a really good playlist just called Smash Smash and it has everything from like Linkin Park, Limp Biscuit, Slipknot through to like some bad, bad R&B, but yeah, anything. <laughs> smash Smash. <laughs> um, it, what's the secret item in your pain cave? Ah, I have a paint suit that I put on for heat training. A what suit? A paint suit. You know when you paint the walls, kind of like Breaking Bad style Yes. Finish your session, put that on, ride your bike, get real hot. Good training. Ride your bike with it on. Yeah. Um, who or what is your motivation? Colin Chapman, as an engineer, he was always a big idol, big motivation for me. 
um, like he had a, a really good quote, which was words to the effect of um, rules are for the obedience of fools and the interpretation of smart men. And I've always just kind of run with that one of like, yeah, we'll go. <laughs> I can see that. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, process over outcome all the time. Yeah. What motivates you to do what you do? Uh, achieving the best of my physiological capability, the best of my capabilities, just full stop, and just doing the best that I can do is what motivates me. Oh, listen, thank you, Dan. Absolutely awesome. I've really enjoyed that. It's been really, honestly, a brilliant disruptor. This podcast was brought to you by Wattbike. The Wattbike Atom is the ultimate indoor bike to kickstart your training. No matter what your training or fitness goals are, the free Wattbike Hub app can get you there. Check out wattbike.com to push your performance edge.